0: Well, you know, understanding the context of a passage in Scripture is always important, but every once in a while we hit a particular story wherein to really, I think, grasp the importance of that particular passage, we need to remember where we've been. And so I want to take a second just to kind of go back and remind you where we've been so far. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything and He creates man, right? And he carves out a garden, and he gives him a purpose to care for and cultivate, the task to rule over the world, if you will, that he had created, and to rule it on his behalf. And, and And he gives man Eve and this essential helpmate, and they set out to fill the earth with God's name, right? But evil and sin and death enter the world, and everything is on a downhill slide from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11. Uh, man is trying to figure out things on his own, trying to, to kind of uh, manage the world and the wildness of it on his own power. But things continue to get worse and worse. And we get to the end of chapter 11 and we think, man, this is, this is, there's no hope. There's no hope. But then God comes to Abraham, the beginning of chapter 12. And he makes promises to Abraham. He, he promises to give him land, to make him into a nation, to make his name great. And, he, and God says, I will, I will bless you, Abraham, I'll bless your offspring, and I will bless the world through you. And from that point on, these things seem to be progressing, and God continues to add to these covenant promises that he's making with Abraham, and then with Isaac, and with Jacob as he goes along, right? And we get these little hints these little movements toward God fulfilling these promises, until we get to Joseph. And Joseph appears to be the most faithful of Abraham's offspring so far. In fact, I would say the story of Joseph, you you get the sense that maybe Joseph's faithfulness rivals Abraham's even. And yet, everything that can go wrong for Joseph goes wrong. Last week's passage really hits rock bottom, right? And we're left asking the question if God can f- can't figure out Joseph's life, how is he going to be how is he going to keep these promises that he's made to Abraham? To Abraham's offspring. How is he going to overcome the evil that we continue to see in the world as we kind of go along in this passage? Yeah, it might be better than It was between Genesis 3 and Genesis 11, but it's it's pretty bad. Or perhaps, perhaps the whole world is actually just really out of control. No doubt it's easy to feel that way ourselves sometimes, right? Like the whole world is out of control. You turn on the news and you see things that are happening. I think now more than ever, because we can get... We can find out what's happening in a country, you know, on the other side of the globe within, you know, minutes, if not seconds of it happening. We, we're we more and more aware of the political unrest, not only in our own country, but in others and wars that are happening and natural disasters and worldwide pandemics abound, right? But we don't need to just pan out to the, the whole world to, to, to understand this reality, we can zoom into our own life, right? We can look at our own relationships, our own situations, our own circumstances. And a lot of times, a lot of times it feels like, man, if, if God can't figure out my life, then what? But I think this passage reveals this passage reveals to us that nothing, nothing, not even, not even nature, not even nations are outside of God's sovereign purposes. He's over them all. And through it all, whatever all is for you, God puts his man in authority. This passage, then, is not only the start of God, God's answer to the big problem that's still plaguing the Genesis story. How is God going to bring about his promises in the midst of evil, when evil exists? But it's a prelude to the ultimate answer and the ultimate solution. And that answer is Christ. Christ exalted, Christ as King. And all the difficulties we face in this life are meant to push us forward and push us upward to the one who is over all and answers all, Jesus. All the difficulties that we face in this life strip away all of the other answers that we try to bring to the table for those problems. All the other things that we try to lean into to keep us from the one true answer. Jesus. So let's look at this passage. It starts 2 years after Joseph helped the cupbearer and yet the cupbearer forgot him. Imagine. Just take just take a, a minute to realize in this very first phrase of chapter 41, the depths of despair that you and I might feel. Here's Joseph. He answers rightly, by God's power, these two dreams that the cupbearer and the baker have and it ought to have illustrated to him the fact that God is with him and that God might even answer his own dreams that he had, and yet two more years go by. We pick up the story with Pharaoh having a dream. The contents of the dreams are similar. Seven attractive and plump cows come out of the Nile but are swallowed up by seven ugly and thin cows that come out of the Nile afterwards, that is a disturbing dream. Am I right? I mean, I'm sure you've had dreams where you know things make total sense when you're dreaming them and then you wake up and you go, that makes no sense whatsoever. How do these seven cows that are thin swallow seven fat cows, but you can't tell that they ever swallowed them? How in the world did they even swallow them in the first place? It's just, it's a dream. Who knows? But this is the dream that Pharaoh has. And he wakes up and, you know, you, we can assume he's a little disturbed, right? You know, oh my goodness, what in the world? So, whew, all right, I fall back asleep. Pharaoh falls back asleep and he has another dream. Seven plump and good stocks come up, right? Seven or, or one stock with seven plump uh, ears of grain on it. And it, it looks all good. And then, And then this other stock comes up and the ears are thin and blighted, it says, and it, the, one, the thin ear swallows up the plump ear. That's even more weird because ears of grain don't have mouths. How did that happen? I don't know. It's a dream. You know, sometimes you go, that didn't make much sense, but all right. So Pharaoh wakes up and he realizes these dreams are significant. But despite all his power, despite all his magicians, despite all his experts, despite all the resources at his disposal, and they would have been many because Pharaoh is perhaps the most powerful man in the world, or at least in that area at that time. He's got everything at his disposal. No one can figure it out. Who will help him? And then the cupbearer remembers. Finally, after two years, he remembers Joseph. So they pull Joseph out of jail. They clean him up, give him a good shave, a good washing, present him before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I had a dream. No one can interpret it, but I heard. I heard. When you hear dreams, you can interpret them. And Joseph replies, and this is an important statement. I want you to grasp this. He replies, it is not me, but God. It is not me, but God. And so Pharaoh tells Joseph the dreams, and he, you know, he, he uh, uh, fills out maybe some of the, the details in, in the dreams from the first telling of them in, in our passage, and, and he ends with this verse 24. He says, And there was no one who could explain it to me. These are my dreams, and no one, literally no one in our entire nation, none of the experts, none of the magicians, no one, can explain it and it's interesting isn't that interesting that in our lives there are things that we don't understand that we don't know what to do we turn to so many things so many things to give us advice to give us wisdom to give us insight and not all those things are necessarily bad But the answer comes from God. The answer comes from God. And I, and this simple prisoner, a Hebrew who would have been despised by the Egyptians, has the answers that all the government, that, that all the powerful nation, that all the experts don't have. Because God gives it to him. Because he leans into God and God's wisdom and insight. Proverbs 9.10 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Every bit of true knowledge, every bit of real wisdom is based on the basic truths that come from recognizing that God is God and from his word. To understand these dreams, they must start with a recognition that it's not Pharaoh in his power. It's not Egyptian gods in their power. It's not the Egyptian experts in all of their knowledge and all of their magic and all of of whatever that is that are going to give the answer and explain it. Only God can do that. Christian, too often we read this story and we think, Yay, God, isn't he great? But when push comes to shove in our own life, too often it's a different story. When we're in a tight spot in our life, too often we turn to almost anything else than God's word. Too often we lean into anyone else's wisdom than God's wisdom. Too often we turn to experts who don't even believe that God exists. Now tell me, if the basis of their knowledge and their life and and their understanding of the world and everything, if the very foundation of it, of their understanding of the way the world works is that there is no God, and at some point down the line, as they try to explain things, will there be wisdom and knowledge and insight there? Proverbs 9.10 tells us no, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. See, just as Joseph reveals the mystery of the dreams and the next phase of God's plan and keeping promises to Abraham and his descendants in a greater way, friends, what we need to understand is in Christ, God's ways are revealed. The mystery of God's plan is most evident in Jesus and in God's word. And God's purpose in Christ is described in the New Testament as a mystery. Not because it's one now, but because it was one, and Christ's life, death, and resurrection have revealed it to us. And now we can know Christ, not because of something in us, or because God, but because God gives His Spirit who regenerates our hearts and opens up our eyes to the truth, and who guides us. And through Christ, we get to share in the, in, in the revealing of God's ways Ephesians 3.10 tells us that this mystery is brought to light in the church, quote, "...so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." You see, Joseph revealed it to the earthly authorities, but in Christ, we who once were imprisoned by sin reveal it to the authorities even that are in the heavenly places." We have in God and in His Word a basis for knowledge, for understanding our world, and for understanding life that the world without Christ does not have. And we, because we are in Christ, get to share. In God's plan of revealing that to those who do not know Him. But how can we do that if we turn to other things instead of God's Word? So Joseph interprets the dreams. They're really one in the same like the other pair of dreams, right? Like his pair of dreams. And so seven good cows, seven good years, or seven good years of plenty, and seven lean cows, and seven empty ears are seven years of famine. And the years of famine will be so much worse that the people will forget that the good years ever happened. The seven years of famine will be so bad that when the thin cow swallows up the fat cow, you can't tell that the fat cow was ever there. And verse 32 says, The doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God. God will shortly bring it about. Joseph, standing before the greatest man... Probably on the face of the planet, he isn't disrespectful, but he also isn't shying away from the reality that there is nothing that Pharaoh in his own power can do about the situation because God will do it. He does not shy away from the fact that God has the authority here. How often in our life are we going around doing our thing, running our show, just as I imagine Pharaoh was doing the day before he had these dreams? Feeling sitting on his throne, feeling like there's nothing that's outside of his control. Look at this mighty nation I have. I'm above it all. And he lays his head down, and by the time he wakes up, everything has changed. Mm. Sometimes, Sometimes I think God stacks the deck in a certain way just to show us there's no hand that he can't win with. What are we to do? Look at what Joseph says. He says to to Pharaoh, here's what I think you ought to do. My paraphrase. All right, Pharaoh. Here's what I think you ought to do. You should find a wise and discerning man to kind of put in charge of this thing. I, I don't know. Now I don't know, Pharaoh, if you've seen one of those lately. I don't know if you've heard of anyone like that. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've, you know, had any evidence of a person's wisdom and discernment and anything that's happened in the last, you know, I don't know, uh, 20 minutes. Uh, but you should find one of those guys, and you ought to just put him over everything. Let him handle it. So, you know, he says, hey, and, and by, by, by the way, I also have this plan. It's pretty wise and discerning. What you should do is you should take fifth of everything for the next seven years, stored up as a reserve for the seven bad years. I don't know. It's just, it was just a thought. Maybe you could do that. Okay, I might be putting words in Joseph's mouth, but you get what I mean. And wouldn't you know it, Pharaoh says, can, can we find a man like this in whom the Spirit is the Spirit of God? Since God has shown you all of this, there is none more discerning and wise as you are. And what does he do? He puts him over the whole land as second in command. Nothing outside of sitting on the very throne of Pharaoh is outside of Joseph's control. No one raises a hand or or a foot without Joseph saying, yeah, that's okay. You know, all the land, wherever he goes, They go before him and they say, bow the knee, as Joseph rolls through town. And Pharaoh gives him command of every single thing. And here's what I want you to see. In Christ, God's man reigns. In Christ, God's man reigns. Joseph's path from humiliation to exaltation, it foreshadows Jesus. Just as Joseph didn't stay in the pit, Jesus didn't stay in the grave. And what's more, Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of everything, and that's exactly exactly how the Father exalts Christ. The Bible says he puts everything under his feet, everything in subjection to Jesus. And so when we find ourselves in those moments when everything seems messed up and we don't know what to do, we think, who can I turn to? I need someone wise and discerning. Someone who loves us, someone who would do anything for us, even die for us. Someone who knows firsthand the struggles that we experience and has overcome them. Who, who could we turn to in those moments? Who has the Spirit of God in him? When we look to Jesus, And it's not just, it's not just that Pharaoh turns to Joseph, like, for personal advice. But Pharaoh turns to Joseph to have government over all of Egypt. Listen with me for a second. This is often how we treat Jesus. Jesus is wise and discerning, and he's God's man, he's exalted over everything, and you should surrender your life to him. But, but when we put that in a box, right? Well, well you're, you, know, you surrender your heart to him, and that means like just these aspects of things are supposed to be submitted to Jesus, but that's not what the Bible tells us, is it? It doesn't tell us You know, all the Christians' hearts are submitted to Jesus. It tells us that everything has been subjected to Jesus. That Christ is the authority over every single thing, every single person, every single other authority that exists. And just as Jesus is over all of Egypt, Christ is over all the world. Every person, every family, every church, every government is to be subjected to Jesus. But oftentimes, even in our own lives, we look to Jesus and what He has commanded us—you know, His 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 wise and discerning advice, if you will—and we think that's hard. Think about this. How many complaints do you think Joseph fielded in those first seven years as he took 20% of all of the crops? How many people do you think were like, wait a second, you're gonna take 20% of everything? That's a heavy cost. We could be living it up right now. We could be having our best life now. We have so much grain, we could be feasting. Here, Joseph comes and takes away 20%. We look to Jesus, and it seems hard at times, but yet Jesus tells us, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Note, there is a yoke and there is a burden. We look at that and we think, ah, that'll be hard but what I want you to see is that our disobedience ends up bringing us a yoke that's heavy and a burden that is crushing. Remember, both the healthy and sick cows come from the Nile. And that's not an insignificant point because if you were an Egyptian, you would have thought, because we have the Nile, because we live on the Nile, we are basically drought-proof. We are basically famine-proof. It can't happen. We will always have food because the Nile will sustain us. And so a dream where seven Thin cows actually emerge up out of the Nile saying, no, out of the Nile this famine will come would have been nonsense to an Egyptian. They would have thought that doesn't make any sense. And so often we look at what Christ commands of us and we use our wisdom and we think that doesn't make sense, Jesus. I mean, this makes sense and this makes sense and so I'll obey you there, but that that doesn't make sense and so I'm going to kind of do my own thing. And we end up paying the price for it. Imagine if that's what Egypt, Egypt had done. By the end of the second seven years, they'd have all been dead. Well, let me let me illustrate it this way, perhaps. Oftentimes, even in a simple thing like. Consistently being in God's word. Praying. Coming to God's word and reading it and knowing it. We think, ah, you know, who has time for that? I'd have to get up earlier in the morning to do that. I'd have to, I don't know, watch one less episode of my Netflix show in order to make time to read God's Word or whatever it is that you do. Oh, that's gonna take a lot of discipline and self control. It's not that big of a deal. And then what happens when the troubles come and the difficulties of life come, and we're like, God, why haven't you given me an answer? I don't know what to do in this situation. Why hasn't your word told me? God's like, look, this was here the whole time. You had seven years of plenty to be reading this. And now the seven years of famine have come, and you are impoverished because you haven't been saving up and storing up my word in your heart. And so, verse 43, I'll, I'd like to bring us back to it for just a second. And this phrase in there, is, I think, is so important. It says, bow the knee. They went before Joseph and they said, bow the knee, because the Father has exalted the Son above everything else. There is only one correct response to Jesus, and that's submission to Him. Everyone is under Christ's authority. If someone doesn't submit to Him, it's not because they aren't under Christ's authority, it's because they're in rebellion to Christ. And I'm not talking like if a Christian doesn't submit to God to to Christ's authority, then no, I'm talking everyone. Everyone is under Christ's authority. The people of Egypt don't get to say, don't get a say in whether or not they're put under Joseph's authority. That's Pharaoh's decision. And you and I don't get a say in whether we're put under Christ's authority. That's the Father's decision. And he has decided. Any attempt to refuse to submit comes with consequences. So we ask ourselves, is submission to Christ really worth it? You see, the reality is, is that everyone, everyone will bow the knee. You ask Joseph, I think we see at the end of, uh, in verse 50 to 52, we see Joseph's answer. Joseph, who went through the ringer, is it worth it to be faithful? Is it worth it to submit to Christ? The names of his sons are given as an answer, I think. The first son's name means that God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Do you believe that the suffering that we may experience, the difficulties that you may go through, as you seek to be faithful and obedient to God, that in the end, it will be worth it? Do you believe that? And then his second son's name highlights that in the very place of his affliction, God has turned it into fruitfulness. Do you believe that God can take something that has produced pain in your life and he can actually turn it into something that produces fruitfulness for his kingdom, if you'd submit to him. The last few verses tell us that things occur just how Joseph had interpreted the famine comes, not only uh, on Egypt, but on all of the lands. But in Egypt, they have bread because of Joseph. And when the people of the land are famished and they cry out for bread, what does Joseph say? He says, go to Joseph. Or what does Pharaoh say? Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. And it says that Joseph opens up the storehouses of grain. And here's the big conclusion. All the earth comes to Egypt to Joseph to Joseph particularly, to buy grain because the famine is so severe on all of the earth. And, this, and there's this partial fulfillment of Genesis 12, right? Because of because Abraham's offspring, because of Abraham's offspring, the known world is blessed. Basically, anytime you have a partial fulfillment of that promise, we have something that points forward to its full fulfillment in Christ. And, and, and listen, in Christ, God's world is rescued. Without Christ... Sin brings about famine in all the earth. A famine of truth, a famine of hope, a famine of peace, a famine of love, a famine of grace, a famine of kindness. But the greater Joseph doesn't just have grain for bread, but he is called the bread of life. And when he opens up the grave, he opens up a storehouse. Grace and mercy and love and power for his people. So Pharaoh says, go to Joseph. And because they do, they have food to eat and they're saved. Any other response would end in death. And here's the bottom line for us this morning. It's either Christ or death. That's the decision before us. It's either Christ or death. John three seventeen eighteen 18 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Those who are not in Christ are famished, friends. They have no food to sustain them. They must come to Jesus. But even for us who are in Christ, us whom Christ will keep, we may be saved from condemnation already, but if Christ gives life and life abundant, then every time we go to something or someone else other than Christ, we invite the taste of death into our life. Seven years of plenty may have looked like a lively good time, but it was God who kept them alive through the seven years of famine. It was God who was not overwhelmed either by nature or nations, but moved everything in order to bring about his plan, and in so doing, to save many people. So let's put this all together Christ is revealed, Christ reigns, Christ is rescuing. Will we turn to Christ or will we have death? Those are the options. Since we're in Christ, we are part of his plan, church. We get to reveal the truth of the gospel to others. We get to reign with him in his kingdom over sin and Satan. We are rescued and God uses us as a means of rescue to others in our relationships, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our countries. And I think this happens when we take three actions we see in the text. I'll remind you of them. When we realize it's not us, but God, that we need him, that he's the answer. As verse 16 says, it's not me, God will. When we submit to Christ as king, our exaltation begins with our submission to him. As verse 43 says, bow the knee. And then when we trust in Christ in obedience, our concern isn't so much what will work, but what has Jesus commanded because God will make it work. And so I will slightly adapt to verse 55. This is what I want to leave you with this morning. God saying to you, go to Jesus. What he says to you, do. It's Christ or death. Let's pray.